Hello and thank you for joining for episode number 148 of Turkey Book Talk. I'm William Armstrong here in Istanbul and in this episode we hear from Ömer Tekdemir. He is a lecturer at Coventry University and the author of Constituting the Political Economy of the Kurds, Social Embeddedness, Hegemony and Identity, which is published by Routledge. The book is a sweeping account examining the development of Kurdish political economy and the emergence of collective Kurdish identity as well as its various schisms from the late Ottoman era to today. Before we get started with the interview, remember that you can find our entire archive of episodes going back to 2015 at turkeybooktalk.com. Also remember that you can support the podcast by becoming a Turkey Book Talk member via Patreon. Joining as a Turkey Book Talk member gets you various extras, including an exclusive discount of 30% off the price of all books published in IB Taurus and Bloomsbury's excellent Turkey and Ottoman History series. Every one of the hundreds of Turkey Ottoman History titles published by IB Taurus Bloomsbury is available to Turkey Book Talk members at a 30% discount. Members get a special code to use at the online checkout and that deal is valid for all physical books, pre-orders and ebooks. Turkey Book Talk members also receive PDF transcripts of every interview via email as soon as the episode is published. You also get PDF transcripts of the entire archive of Turkey Book Talk interviews when you sign up, including many extras that have not previously been published on the podcast. Members also receive an archive of over 200 book reviews written by myself, ranging from Turkish and international fiction and poetry to history, politics and journalism related to the Middle East and Europe. And finally, I also send links to a couple of articles related to the subject of the episode in the email that I send out to members upon publication, which is ideal if you want to delve that bit deeper. To become a member, just pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then of course you'll be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. There are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now on to our conversation with Ömer Tekdemir. The book starts by taking us back to the mid-19th century, describing how the Ottoman Empire's modernization and centralization process, also known as the Tanzimat reforms, had a major impact on the Kurdish-majority regions of eastern and southeastern Anatolia. Before the empire's modernization process, those Kurdish-majority regions had for centuries experienced a considerable degree of autonomy from the imperial authorities in Istanbul. That all changed with the centralizing reforms, which were implemented by the authorities in a bid to stave off the empire dissolution. The reform process triggered in Kurdish regions a top-down transformation of the local political economy and led to a new type of leadership to emerge in Kurdish society. Perhaps paradoxically considering the modernization process, a more traditionalist Kurdish elite of Agas and Sheikhs emerged. In many ways, the schism that then developed in Kurdish society between a conservative, religious, often tribal state-friendly elite and more nationalist, positivist and progressive forces remains potent today. So I started by asking Ömer Tekdemir to talk about the importance of going back to that 19th century era. To understand Kurdish issue, and particularly contemporary Kurdish issues and identity politics, it's very difficult to go without visiting, you know, last part of the Ottoman time. When Emirates was dominated in the region, at the same time, Ottoman Empire started the modernized the government, centralization of the government, and transformation of the Ottoman political economy started. So that triggered somehow Ottoman to make a push in the certain regions including uh, Ottoman Kurdistan, and they use centralizations to control the region. 
pushing society to adopt these new process. But that time, the Emirate, the people like Abdurrahman Pasha, the Prince of Baban uh, in 1788, Prince Ismail Pasha's Badini in 1830, Mir Muhammad of Ravandu's 1834, they somehow mobilized tribes to prevent their community and as well as rejected these external push by Ottoman, by Istanbul government. So that creates some kind of, you know, clashes. But however, when they suppressed by the Ottoman army, they lost this battle. So this creates some sort of hegemonic gap internally, Aga and Sheikhs somehow take the control in the regions. The struggle didn't end. The Ottomans still was pushing hard to catch up with European countries. So that also the, again caused some uprising by new actors such as Sheikh Said Barzinja, Suleimania, Sheikh Abdul Salam in Bidlis. They all tried to again protect their own region in terms of the economics and politics as well. So it's ironic in a way that the, the Tanzimat reforms of the 19th century were this kind of modernization, centralization push from Istanbul. But in the Kurdish provinces, it actually had the opposite effect because it ended up empowering a new, more traditionalist kind of elite of Agas and Sheikhs who you talk about. But that empowering of these traditionalist figures had a number of effects, long-term effects that we still see today, actually. And you talk about them in the book. Some of those effects included also uh, the resistance to industrialization and uh, resistance to new Kurdish nationalist movements that were emerging in response to all this. And you also talk in the book, interestingly, I think, about how some of the emerging nationalist and positivist Kurdish leaders and intellectuals really couldn't convince many people in Kurdish local society to kind of break this social contract that had been formed between, you know, the Agas, the sheikhs and the state. And they couldn't really instigate the change and a kind of counter movement. And you say this was also the case for many other tribal societies, but quote, what makes the Kurdish example different is that the society insisted on retaining authentic values and resisted change for eons. And uh, I just wonder if you could talk a bit more in, in a bit more detail about that, because that may come as a surprise to, to some listeners, may even be offensive to some listeners. Uh, when I say this one, obviously, in a bigger pictures, Ottoman Empire, if you compare with the West, they have a, with, a, with a very rural understanding of economy, uh, pre-modern mode of productions, if you compare with the European countries. But in the Kurdish case, what makes Kurdish case different than the others? The most of the other nations within the Ottoman, they willing to be part of the, these so-called new world order, 19th century societies, the modernization, industrialization. Uh, process. But with the Kurds, I think there was a sort of reluctance. These kind of values, religious, tribal values, reputation is much important than economic incomes. Owner and these kind of social values dominated society. So these characteristic of the Kurdish society and non-economic institutions such as marriage, for instance, with the cousins, particularly uncle's uh, daughter, intermarriage, these kind of institutions somehow preserve the Kurds be part of the, these great transformation process of the century. 
these values and social institutions let Kurds not to be part of the, this transformation. And this reluctance creates the consequences for the Kurdish society. When they realize the world already has been replaced and modernity became dominant idea and, and nations have their own nation state and industrialization brings you know wealth and as well as some of the other values for the society. So therefore, then they start to think and respond it particularly after the republic. So you say that you gesture there to the start of the Republican era and most of the rebellions in the Kurdish region in the early Republican era were led by tribal and religious leaders, as you mentioned there. Perhaps most famous or most notable is the Sheikh Said rebellion, of course. So how does that fact, the fact that these were traditionalist leaders leading these, uh, these rebellions, how does that fit into this framework that you're drawing up? So when the society realized they missed the opportunity of the 19th centuries, particularly like having their own nation state sovereignty, their own authority in the regions, when political leaders realize they missed the opportunity, they, they immediately reacted. For the Sheikh Said case, there are also so, some sort of misunderstanding of um, Sheikh Said or different explanation on the Sheikh Said rebellion. I think when Sheikh Said, as a person, religiously and socially charismatic or conventional leader, but when it comes to the, his aim, I think he is quite willing to have some sort of modern form of the state for the Kurdish society. And uh, I think he has a very good statement in here when he says there is an agreement between the Kurds and Turks. When the Ottoman ended and caliphate institution has been abolished by the new government, this social agreement has been expired between Turks and Kurds. Therefore, Kurds has got the right to establish something their own. Now, all such rebellions were pretty roundly crushed and there was the continuation of the centralization policies and associated with that all of the cultural Turkification that uh, is very famous, of course, in the early Republican era. But then, of course, the single party era emerges uh, with the first democratic election in the 1950s in 1950 and you spend quite a bit of time in the book talking about the 1950s and you talk about it as this period of relative political opening up after that 1950 election and indeed the 1950s you describe uh, saw a development of Kurdish identity under a kind of limited liberalism that emerged so you talk about Kurdish intellectuals starting to form their own political culture independently of the state redefining their own identity beyond the definition imposed by the center. And you describe this in the book as a kind of Kurdish national awakening, in a sense. Could you just talk about that? How did that emerge and what form did it take? What was new about it? In 1946, when Turkey, with the encouragement of the international powers, opened the political life to do more democratic, more liberal contexts. And then first time we have multi-party systems, so the Kurdish votes became quite important. So therefore, this kind of opportunity space for the Kurdish society create a awakening of the Kurdish, separate Kurdish identity. So they started again creating the Kurdish identity in modern sense. People like Musa Antar, Mustafa Ramzi Bujak, 
they started creating these Kurdish identity in terms of the authentic Kurdish values, different than the, these so-called Turkishness. So these also created some sort of national awakening, as, as you mentioned it. These organic intellectuals created, reactivated Kurdish political movement to mobilize within the Turkish politics. Obviously, they use left parties, they use right parties, with different motivations and with their own different identities. But somehow, whether they're on the left side or the right side, they created separate Kurdish identity within the, these political parties. And that's create also the foundations for the 60s. If I may go to the 60s and 70s, these new political organizations in the 60s, predominantly within the leftist idea, within the leftist principles, they created secular, modern, gender-friendly, Kurdish identity, which is quite different than existence Kurdishness within the society. So on the one hand side, they are creating these Kurdishness based on the struggle against the conventional, traditional Kurdish society. At the same time, they also creating these counter-hegemonic cultures against the Turkish government to demand their own the democratic rights and as well as linguistic cultural rights as well. Yes. So you describe how over time there is this kind of strong and deep ideological difference that emerges, really, dividing, uh, as you say, the more left wing and the more right wing Kurdish agents. So between the radical leftist organizations and the traditionalist pro-state Uggers and Sheikhs and Kurds have basically channeled into either one of these camps, either conservative right wing Turkish politics, often mainstream political parties that accepted the state legitimacy or alternatively left wing movements where more Kurdish cultural nationalism could be expressed, cultural identity, and in the extreme end later on, of course, the PKK's armed resistance. There is this sense really that this, you know, the modernist Kurdish nationalist struggle has always attempted to kind of deconstruct the old social structure and transform it basically, creating a new order effectively by mobilizing society against the conservative, patriarchal and unequal social structure. And I suppose one way to look at it is that a critic could argue that it's always basically struggling against society. It's unhappy with the state of traditional Kurdish society and it's constantly trying to reform it. So it takes up this antagonist stance in a, in a sense against the way people live and the way that traditional society operates. And I just wonder if does that make it easier for people to come out and argue basically, look, the, the Kurdish nationalist movement wants to reform you, wants to change you, it wants to, it thinks you're not good enough and it thinks the way you do things isn't up to scratch. And in a way, it kind of alienates the Kurdish movement from traditional, ordinary people. That would be the argument. The PKK, based on the legacy of the 1960s, because the, the, the modern Kurdish identity, separate Kurdish identity, has been established by 50s traditional organic intellectual, what I call. And after that, organizations develop this identity and reshape it within the, these, you know, modern principles, whether secularism, left, leftist understanding and gender equality. There are plenty of Kurdish organization mushroomed during the, this time, 60s, 70s, from PSK to Azadi or, or many other different organizations. Then, you know, after the PKKs somehow took internal hegemonic struggle within the Kurdish political movements, PKK took from there, after particularly 1984, 
they started, you know, armed struggle after the coup and the human rights violation in Diyarbakir prison. So that created an opportunity for the PKK to use such human capital and as well as the motivations within the society. So after the 84 and particularly armed struggle conflicts and violence, somehow these defined Kurdishness has been accepted by both sides, within the society and with the state as well. So this created some sort of dominant Kurdish identity, dominant Kurdishness. After the 1990s, particularly Erdogan captures, Turkey's willing to be part of the EU accessions, and some other progress within the European Union and the world, somehow the identity process has been changed. So particularly what I talk about postmodern Kurdishness, I'm talking about new political projects, started after the 90, particularly in 2000s, during the Gezi movements and uh, HDP's emergence. So these inclusive and new understanding of the Kurdish identity became sort of reality of the Kurdish politics. New members of the Kurdish societies reappear within the Kurdish public sphere, like, you know, Muslim Kurds, and uh, I call in the book White Kurds. So the HTPs understood these villain quite well and created new kind of identity projects for the Kurds and as well as for the Turkish society to make this kind of politics. You talk in the book at length about Turkey's EU process and its effect on the Kurdish question. And in that period, years ago, of developing relations between the EU and Turkey, you know, Turkey having this EU membership goal, at that time, obviously, that had a big effect on relations between the Kurds and the central Turkish state and also EU institutions. So you talk in the book about how many European officials uh, went to visit Diyarbakir. They had big uh, contacts with Kurdish organizations and NGOs, and they became those NGOs became much more effective in communicating with EU institutions and increasing level of contact and diplomacy and lobbying. And of course, that's all disappeared now, really, because uh, you know T- Turkey's EU uh, accession process is pretty much completely moribund, and f- there's a lot of bitter feelings around. I just wonder how that has affected, because obviously that's not the only thing that's happened. In the last few years, we've seen the complete collapse, really, of the peace process that previously persisted and a securitization of the Kurdish issue and a real crackdown on the HDP and um, basically a reversal of all those old trends that were underway during the uh, EU accession process. So there is quite a shift there in the last few years. And I just wonder how that uh, reflects on the arguments that you make in the book. For sure, the EU's leverage has dramatically decreased in the country for the macro politics and as well as for the micro politics for the Kurds. But during the 90s, accession process was quite dynamic. The Kurds was pro-EU, obviously, because of the EU's represent liberalization and democratizations for the Turkey. In the book, what I argue is not directly EU is promoting the Kurdish political parties. The unionizations here, HDPs, took such liberal values and using the, these spaces, such as you know, democratic principles like liberty and equality to all, promoting inclusive left-wing populism, embracing the west side of the Turkey, such as you know, progressive uh, social movements, and as well as uh, of the east side of the Turkey to different Kurdish political actors under the one coalitions as a you know, democratic bloc politics. 
So in this case, to respond your question, the EU just use in the in the in the book as a rhetoric, as a representative of liberal values that has been used by Kurdish political parties and as well as by the HDP, because I slightly take different positions. I don't call HDP as a pro-Kurdish party, but instead I call HDP as a Kurdish-led, in a sense, left-leaning populist party for Turkish politics. There's something else I want to talk about, uh, which is often overlooked, I think, in um, in discussions of the Kurdish issue, but it's the level of migration and urbanization over decades. And obviously, there's many complicated reasons for this, including broader national trends in Turkey, but also, of course, the migration that was triggered in recent decades by the clashes between the state and the PKK from the 1980s in eastern and southeastern Anatolia. But whatever the causes, this migration created this new reality on the ground, basically, in Turkey. There was a huge wave, really, of migration of people from the east and the southeast into big cities like Istanbul. And that led to a new mingling of Kurdish and Turkish citizens. And in fact, uh, I think it's correct to say that Istanbul has become the largest, most populated Kurdish city in the world. And that has led to a kind of assimilation to some degree, but it also creates a kind of ambivalence, the kind of grey area where there's people who don't fit into either box particularly comfortably. And... Um, I just wonder if you could reflect a bit on that. You know, how does that reality on the ground affect some of these arguments, affect some of the dynamics that you're talking about in the book? In the book, I created identity map and uh, focusing on three main different identities for the Kurdish society. In there, what I said, there is secular leftist Kurdish identity, there is conservative Islamic Kurdish identity, and there is also pragmatist opportunities, so-called white Kurds within the Kurdish society. This Kurdish identity is very intermingled. You know, it's, it's related with the Turkishness and also the some of the opportunity spaces within the Turkish political and economic life. They are part of the society, part of the urban life. Some of them are integrated, some of them partly integrated. So they don't have as such as collective identity like the, the other two groups. They are mostly individualized within the different part of the city life and as well as, you know, in academia, in arts, in many different public spheres. So these people, they started somehow sporting HDP's new discourse, new language. I think in this case, the urbanized Kurds became quite handy for the Kurdish politics. You know, I was actually, when I was reading and creating data for my book, I realized one of the Kurdish boy from uh, a Senyurt area came to the Taksim during the Gezi protest. And uh, he actually mentioned, uh, interestingly, saying that first time in his life, in his life that he met a Turkish friend in, in, in Taksim. So that's kind of, you know, interesting new way of the communications between the people create a synergy and sort of, you know, dynamic for possible peace processes. And I wonder, thinking about those kind of synergies and dynamics, how will they be affected if the HDP is closed down? Because by the time this episode is published, actually, maybe it will have already been closed down because the Constitutional Court is about to decide whether to accept the the latest file from the prosecutor to open a case uh, to close down the HDP on a number of charges. 
So can you imagine a new political formation emerging? Obviously, there are there is talk about anyone senior in the HDP being banned from politics entirely. So it seems quite difficult to imagine that if it is closed down, how a new formation could emerge to inherit that legacy as previous Kurdish-led parties uh, have done in the past. They've reformed after being closed down. Maybe that won't happen in the future, but I just wonder if you could look ahead. It's obviously a, a very difficult to predict, but can you um, speculate a bit about what will happen to some of these dynamics on the ground that we're talking about if indeed the HDP is closed down? HDP, it was a great chance for both sides, whether Turkish or Kurdish politics, you know, whether macro or micro politics, because it challenged statico. On the one hand side, it challenges Turkish nationalism because it's promoting integration of the Kurdish society within the Turkey. When it says Turkiness, Turkey Leshme, it doesn't mean Turkification. It means integration of the Kurdish society and communication of the society with the western side of the country. And also, you know, it's it's opened the Kurdish politics into the different diverse identities from the Islamic perspective to the ecologics, feminist organizations, LGBT movements. But at the same time, it is tackling dominant Kurdish politics because it's changing the methods, it's promoting parliamentarian and democratic struggle rather than armed conflict, asking the violence be ended. So this is a challenge for the both sides because this is completely somehow deconstruct, unpack the existence politics that people get used to. So obviously the closure of the HDP is going to impact the democratic struggle for the country for sure. And it will be quite bad to miss the opportunity to create a social political ground for the people of the country to understand each other and to find the solutions within the parliamentarian system rather than other different non-parliamentarian channels. So this is going to be, I guess, a missed opportunity in the long term. And of course, there's also the transnational aspect of the issue. That's really come more to the fore in recent years. It's become hugely influential, actually, on the domestic issue within Turkey, particularly in response to developments in Syria and the emergence of these autonomous Kurdish-led territories in Syria. Uh, Turkey carried out these cross-border operations to bring those territories more under control. And now, of course, there's a lot of op- a lot of operations in Iraq as well going on. So those cross-border operations in which Turkey is really projecting its power into Syria and Iraq. Those Turkish cross-border operations really go hand in hand with the domestic political crackdown on the HDP. So it's kind of two sides of the same coin, really. In each country, the, the reality is quite different than each other. The parliamentarian politics in Turkey are quite different than the other countries that you mentioned in Iraq and Syria. But with, if you look at the other examples of the Kurdish politics, predominantly they are going to reject the existing system by creating their own. So there is some kind of direct revolution aim in Syria in KRG, Kurdistan Regional Government. This is a totally different model, which is also in the in the book, I, I talk different models of the Kurds. And this is quite different understanding of the having nation state integrating global market economy, slightly different than the Syrian cases, you know, because they are more communal economy, rejecting of the capitalist mode of production, promoting ecology, promoting uh, feminist ideas. 
So even though they are having very similar ideology with the Syrian Kurds, HDP's understanding is quite different. HDP wants to stay within the existing system, but wants the system to be changed. That was Umar Tekdemir. Many thanks to him for joining for episode number 148. Remember, if you enjoy Turkey Book Talk, you can support it by joining as a member on Patreon. Membership gets you that 30% discount on all Turkey Ottoman history books published by IB Taurus and Bloomsbury, transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive of interviews, access to an archive of over 200 book reviews written by me, and links via email to articles and other content related to the subject of each episode. For all that, just pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account. Also do please rate or review Turkey Book Talk on whatever podcast platform you use, follow via our website turkeybooktalk.com or via Twitter or via our Facebook page or all of them. And I always enjoy hearing from listeners, so do send any recommendations, feedback or abuse to williamjohnarmstrong at gmail.com. But until our next episode of Turkey Book Talk in a couple of weeks, thank you very much for listening. Thank you.